thousands of years of indigenous knowledge is helping to build a sustainable future. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Monday, October 23rd. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Henry Redcloud joins us from Mapialuta. We'll talk about his role in the upcoming PBS Native America Season 2. Then, a singer with a seven-decade career, the great folk musician Judy Collins is with us. Both those conversations are coming a bit later in the hour. But first, we explore the falling rate of domestic violence in Sioux Falls, and we'll ask about the challenges of even identifying domestic violence and the further challenges of reporting it. Chief John Toom is with us. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Well, last week was National Buddy Check Week. It's a call to action for military veterans to check in with 10 fellow vets and see how they're doing. Connecting veterans in community is an ongoing, one of many ongoing missions for Community Action for Veterans, led by my friend Jill Baker. And Jill is returned to SDPB's Kirby Family Studio to tell us more about the Call It Courage fundraiser with the CAV. It's happening at Vern ID Marine in Sioux Falls in early November. It's a three-day event from Tuesday, November 7th to Thursday, November 9th. So I'm checking in with my buddy. Hey, Joe. Hi, how's it going, Lori? <laughs> doing well. It's How are you doing? You. Um, this is your ongoing passion as a military veteran yourself, as a family, uh, military family member yourself growing up. This has been a passion project for you, and it's really taking off in the community. Tell me a little bit about the response that you've had from South Dakota veterans who have gravitated to your work. Yeah, it's just been really exciting to, you know, have been doing this work since 2015 and now to be hosting our first fundraiser. We were really wanting to do something that, um, you know, that really was built around courage, health, wellness, and healing through the arts. And so we decided to do our first year as an as an online art auction mm-hmm. so that we could do a call for artists, um, particularly veterans, but not just veterans. I mean, our part of our goal is to connect military and non-military people together. Mm-hmm. So um, it's just really given some of these veterans a chance to come in and showcase their art um, to us. And, you know, it's just been great chatting with them, learning a little bit about why they did what they did and why they painted what they painted or sculpted what they sculpted, you know, things like that. And so um, it's just, I'm really excited that we're using this as our backdrop of our theme, Call It Courage, through, you know, visual arts. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the community support that you have received for the fundraiser. So when we first decided that we wanted to have a fundraiser and we wanted to do this, you know, the, big, the biggest thing was how? How are we ever going to put on something like this our first year with so few, little resources? And one of the Vern ID um, employees, we had reached out to that person and they brought it up the chain of command and they're like, we want to host this event for you. Mm-hmm. So it's just really exciting um, that they're just doing so much to um, give us the space that we need and just some of those resources that we really need to be able to host just a wonderful event. Your brochure says that the leading gap in services is really a lack of collaboration and connection. 
tell me a little bit about the Cavs' role in in sort of meeting people where they're at and helping them find the highway to the right place where the services can be found. So there's a, a few things there to really talk about. The way that we are doing that right now is by hosting events. So we try to provide space for, you know, the resources, providers to come in to help the veterans that we would bring there or their families, service members. And so we do that by ensuring that there's culturally competent resources there. If they're not, we want to bring them in and just kind of have a little chat with them so that those providers that we do or are being referred to from other providers or, you know, case managers or community health workers have some of that cultural awareness. Yeah. Healthcare obviously is a, a big um, need for veterans to connect to finding their benefits is another need. But talk a little bit, if you will, before um, we let you go about just the impact of deployment, the impact of being a military family surrounded maybe by other families who aren't, it's like, you know, you can feel isolated, like you're the only family that's going through something when your loved ones are deployed or come back from deployment. One of the most powerful memories that I have um, when I was first starting this work back in the early, like 2017, around that time frame, I was subbing in the school district. And I was working in the after-school program that, that uh, on this specific after evening. And all these kids were playing, and there was this one little guy, and he was sitting at the table by himself coloring. And I thought, hmm, I'm going to go over and go over and sit with him and see what's up. He just didn't seem like he was um, happy. Seemed a little sad. And so I went over to him, and I start coloring with him. And he, he just says to me, I said, how are you doing? And he goes... My daddy's in the war. Mm. And I was just kind of taken aback. And I said, oh, well, do you know any other kids that have daddies in the war? And he goes, no. And that's a moment that is so powerful to me. And that really, really got me thinking about military kids. I myself am a military kid, but I grew up on military bases where there were resources and support. And I was surrounded by military brats day mm -hmm. in and day out. This little guy, you know, I don't know exactly if his parent, his daddy, because he said his daddy's in the war, was National Guard or Reserves, I don't know. But I, what, what really struck me was how he felt alone yeah. in that moment. And right there, just shows you that struggle that, that that one little guy has, and that's just one little person. Hmm. Um, thank you for that story. Community yeah. Action for Veterans, connecting families and service military-connected people together and to different organizations. The Call It Courage fundraiser is at Vern ID in Sioux Falls, November 7th to 9th. We'll put more information up about everything on our website, sdpb.org slash news. Jill Baker, thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, nearly 10 million Americans a day are impacted by domestic violence. In a few moments, we'll welcome Sioux Falls Police Chief John Toom. We'll talk about why rates of reported domestic violence are falling in the state's largest city. That's good news. 
And yet, domestic violence can be hard to identify and even harder to report. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We wanted to bring to your attention a conversation I had last February with Leslie Morgan Steiner. She's the author of the memoir Crazy Love. Augustana University had brought her to town. It's a book that documents her relationship with an abusive husband. Take a listen. Well, the patterns in abusive relationships are almost always identical to what happened to me. And also the fact that it happened to me when I was 23 years old is also typical. Women and girls between the ages of 16 to 24 are three times as likely to be abuse victims as older women. And so I was a typical victim, even though I went to Harvard and I you know, had this exciting job at Seventeen Magazine in New York, I was still very typical. And what happened at first is that I fell in love with him. Uh, He was smart. He also had just graduated from an Ivy League school. He had a great Wall Street job. He was funny. He was self-deprecating. And he was really emotionally intelligent, which I think is the most charming thing of all. And he could practically, it felt to me, Lori, like he was seeing inside me in a way that no none of my friends or family members ever had before and it was really intoxicating so that's always the first step and abuse victims will tell you what i just told you that the beginning is like a fairy tale Mm. and then the second part is always isolation because you cannot abuse somebody unless you isolate them first and there are many ways to isolate somebody a geographic isolation um, is a very effective way, but financial, psychological, emotional um, are also key components of abuse. And what is really important is to get the victim so that she is not telling the truth to family members or friends or employers or medical professionals, the very people who could help her. And that's what my um, fiance got me to do. He got me to keep secrets from my family and it drove a wedge between me and them. And it made it much easier for him to begin abusing me. And once he was abusing me, it made it much harder to reach out to them um, because they had warned me. They had said not to marry him, not to be with him, that he was dangerous, that he was very angry. And I had insisted that I knew best. So when he did start to hurt me, um, and the first attack came five days before our wedding, I already felt this distance between myself and the people who loved me the most. And I was reluctant to turn to them for help. Mm. You say in your um, very famous TED Talk and in your book that you didn't know he was abusing you. You really thought that you were a strong woman in love with a troubled man. He had this background of being abused. He had put his own life together and you really thought your love was going to to hold him up. That seems so noble. And yet... And it's so much the way women in this country, maybe in every country, are raised to be. Mm-hmm. That the most noble thing we can do is to help a troubled man and protect a troubled man. And I really fell for it hard. And he had been terribly abused as a little boy. And I, I have a big heart. And my heart broke for that little boy. And... I wanted to show him what true love was all about. And that kind of intense love mixed with pity and psychological denial that you're being abused by someone who you love and trust is a really potent cocktail. And I could not admit 
to myself or to anybody else that I was being abused. And we lived in a tiny town in New England that was part of my geographic isolation. And there was a retired sheriff who lived two houses down from me. And if he had knocked on the door in the middle of one of our beatings, um, you know, when Connor was holding loaded guns to my head and doing all the other awful things that he did to me, I would have with a straight face said to the sheriff, I don't need help. Please go away. I'm not being abused. Mm. And I believed that. I believed I was a strong, smart, independent woman in love with a troubled man. And I, I didn't think I was a battered wife. It took me a long time, even after the relationship ended, for me to say those words, that I was an abused wife. Yeah. And your abuse is so stark and so specific and so life-threatening um, that it makes me wonder, people who are experiencing all forms of abuse, the, the things that our brain does to protect us from that reality. How did that intersect, Leslie, with this idea that it is incredibly dangerous to leave an abuser? Because you say one of the toughest questions, the saddest question, I think you called it, is when someone says, why doesn't she just leave? And then you point out how life-threatening it could be to leave. So did you know that too? I mean, part of it is like, I don't, I don't think I'm being abused because I think I'm strong and I can, I can navigate this. When does the awareness creep into your mind that actually taking action could put your life even more at risk than it already was? Well, in the beginning, in the earliest phases of abusive relationships, quite often we don't want to leave because we don't want to abandon the man who we love. Mm-hmm. and the person that we love, because sometimes it's not a man, you know, sometimes these abuse happens in all kinds of relationships and women can abuse too. But what happened to me is that because he was beating me and threatening me with guns on such a regular basis, I became afraid all the time. He had three loaded guns that he kept with him all the time. And he was also, um, he had been a victim of strangulation as an abused child. And so he used that on me too. He strangled me on a regular basis. So I was really in a heightened state of fear all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I knew, I knew that I was in danger of staying, but I also knew that if I left him, it would trigger even more rage. And then he would have nothing to lose by killing me. And that does something to you. And it, if, if a victim tells you that she is really afraid to leave, you've got to listen to her because she knows what she's talking about. Yeah. And 70% of domestic violence homicides happen after we've ended the relationship, usually within the first week or so. It's, it's very, very dangerous to leave an abusive person. You have to be really careful. And I was in some ways fortunate because the final beating was so severe and he came so close to killing me that I really knew that if I went, if I was alone with him again, he would kill me. Mm-hmm. And when I finally called the police that night, um, they confirmed that. And I say that I was lucky because it was so black and white. And I, I really knew I could never be with him again. That's just a part of my conversation with New York Times best-selling author Leslie Morgensteiner. She wrote the memoir Crazy Love about the abusive relationship she survived. You can find that full interview with Leslie online at sdpb.org news. Now, after the break, we'll keep this conversation going. We welcome Sioux Falls Police Chief John Toome to the program. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio.
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Before the break, you heard my interview with author Leslie Morgan Steiner from February, and she's talked about her memoir, Crazy Love, which dove into her relationship and eventual separation from an abusive husband. We're going to talk more about domestic violence now. We have Sioux Falls Police Chief John Toom with us. Every call to the police reporting domestic violence can be an opportunity to get a victim help. We're going to talk about what that looks like and what the community is doing, what the community can know. Chief Toom, welcome back. Thanks yeah, for being here. Thanks for having me. Like I said, I always enjoy coming on. Now, the news is, is positive in the sense that domestic violence calls have gone down in the city of Sioux Falls, but that needs some context. Tell yeah. us a little bit about what we know about domestic violence calls in the city. So we tend to look at, well, every year we look at trends and see what's the year-to-year progression on that because agencies look at different things in different ways. And so for us, we really take a hard look each year. And this year, as we kind of did our mid-year stats report, we saw that there was an increase in aggravated assaults, an increase in simple assaults. But while that's taking place, which is kind of consistent with nationwide trends, we dial down to domestics in both aggravated and simple category. And they're both showing decreases from the last year. So in the face of rising assaults, we can see domestics actually going down. And I think that's a really positive thing to highlight and encourage, especially over since the last five years, we've seen domestics kind of trending up. So to take that step back, move in a good direction, I think is something that we can be, be pretty excited about and want to really talk about. What do you want to say about um, the community services and the places yeah. that people, because that doesn't necessarily mean that domestic violence isn't happening, but it might mean it's not turning into a police call, that well, someone's getting services elsewhere. Tell me how to think about yeah, these numbers. So I, yeah, so I think we look at it as a lot of times we think of law enforcement either making arrest or a prosecution as the resolution of these events, right? Well, it's just a something that happens as a result of other things. We see the cycle of domestic violence where officers are called back again and again and again. So... It's not necessarily a byproduct of making arrests, but us partnering with some really good nonprofits who do really good things. And I always, you know, look at the Compass Center, and I, ever since Children's Inn changed their name, I always get it wrong, but it's Children's Home Society Shelter for Family Safety. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I got to get yep. it rolls off a tongue, but we need to highlight the work they're doing and make sure every time this topic comes up that we're, we're shifting the focus kind of to the whole system as a whole. And that's a, a, a public that's aware of these issues and is aware of the resources that we can divert people to. Because as an officer, sometimes I'd kind of feel a little bit powerless uh, at the end of a domestic violence call. And I'd be like, well, you know, here's the number for the children's end at the time. And I'd write it on a sheet of paper and I'd give it to them. And I knew that I could at least steer them towards a resource, right? And I may not be the one that took them there, but they could, if they take that step, there's somebody there willing to help them. Yeah. There are always high profile cases of two things. One, officers didn't catch something. And then there's a high-profile death, or two officers respond to a domestic assault that turns out to be very dangerous for the officers. Yeah. Avoiding all kinds of cliches, but realizing the seriousness of these calls and what can happen. What do you want people to understand about domestic violence and I- intimate partner violence that can go from um, chronic to very acute and life-threatening in an instant? Yeah, I mean, it really, it grows over time sometimes too. And I think what starts out at first is, oh, well, that'll never happen again. Or this is just a one-time thing. They really didn't mean it. But then it grows and grows and grows. And I think there's a misconception that, you know, domestic violence only takes place in some parts of town, right? It takes place everywhere. It's, it's just, if we look at it, if we study it, whether or not it gets reported though is the other factor. 
And I think it's it comes up again and again, and we need to just be open and have that dialogue about about what exactly are the signs. And I think I remember having this conversation. Our, our domestic violence detectives do great work with working with victims in the state's attorney's office with our victim advocates and like really messaging it doesn't get better. Like stats tell us it doesn't get better. In fact, stats tell us it gets worse the longer this goes on. And then you see some really tragic cases and some really bad situations. But I always like to reference this back too. And like this is model behavior that's modeled and displayed for our kids then. And so what's our kids' expectation of a healthy relationship? What's our kids' expectation of how their significant other is going to treat them? And if we don't interrupt the cycle, it becomes just part of what's an accepted part of a relationship. And, and I think we're doing way better than we were 20 years ago about calling out loud and not hiding it. Uh, but again, there's a lot of shame that goes with it too. And so I think working through all those multifaceted issues to really make a, an impact is, is difficult, but something we have to really keep, keep it on. And with October, again, being the month we always bring highlight to, uh, I think it's really a year-round, though. It's a year-round yeah, thing. Right. we got to be bringing attention to that. There are other circumstances, and talk to me a little bit about officer training and what the law allows you to do where someone might call you anticipating that you will make an arrest. Yeah. And, so, and instead you give them a phone number for Children's Inn. Um, help us understand the nuances, the range or the spectrum of officer response to a domestic violence call. Well, and it really was a interesting, you know, when I got hired in 2005, there was already some state laws in the book because it was a mandatory arrest when there was probable cause that a domestic assault had taken place within something that had met the definition of a domestic relationship. And so um, that was already a move way back then to say, you know what, we're going to kind of take the uh, away from the victim. Now, the victim needs to have rights, but there's many really complicated reasons why a victim would choose to be a victim in those circumstances. And we're trying to make sure the state has the opportunity to intervene and make a mandatory arrest. So from the, as soon as I showed up, we were well drilled on what's a mandatory arrest? What are the elements of domestic assault? What are the elements that need to be met to make an arrest? And as this changing evolution has kind of taken place, the law has been refined through the years. And so our officers get training almost every year on this topic. And then the other piece of it, though, is there are situations where it just doesn't apply. You know, there may be some words used in maybe an unhealthy relationship or something may have happened in, in the past, but we're not getting where we need to. And I think that's where you see a lot of times officers refer people to, uh, you know, a, a protection order, right? Or right, sure. and sometimes, and I've had personal experiences where the conversation I'm having with a victim while I'm in uniform and this moment of crisis just isn't as effective, right? They, we're just not going to get the inroads where we need to. And that's where I was really always comfortable with, hey, uh, I know maybe you're not ready to talk today, but there are people out there who want to help you. And, and the Children's Inn component, the Compass Center component, we could send people because I may be far more comfortable talking to an advocate than I am as an officer. Because what's our end goal? Our end goal, yeah, we need to make arrests where arrests need to be made, but we need people to have the empowerment and support to get out of their their bad situations and their bad relationships. So hopefully we don't have to go back again. I think that's the ultimate goal. It's not measured in arrests. It's measured in individual stories and how people can move forward and, and break the chains of the domestic violence cycle. The research shows that um, a domestic violence call can be dangerous for officers, but in a different way yeah. than um, the normal <laughs> high-risk officer call. So what are some of the details, again, from a training perspective, where yeah. you tell your officers, if this is the call, these are the sorts of things that you want to do that will put you in the situation to help people, but will also get you home at the end of the night? Well, I think it's important, and we always kind of st stress, and 
early on that this is a highly charged event, right? This is there's some deep emotional ties that are also on top of this this interaction. If I go to a regular fight outside of a bar, for example, it's probably the heat of the moment. There's not years of history between the two. There's not shared kids. There's not shared relationship. There's not deep emotional hurt that you see within a domestic relationship. So because of those factors for both the suspect and the victim, there's some nuances that you just don't see in other calls. You know, what is this suspect thinking, planning, or doing? You know, I remember going to certain calls, being really acutely aware of their actions because you don't know what's about to be uncovered, right? And you don't know what's gonna be there. Well, then from the victim standpoint, the victim may really may not want to be a victim because they rely solely on this other person for their financial stability, the ability to see their kids, the ability to have some you know function in their life. So they may fight against that too. And they may be so kind of twisted by the moment that they start to see the officer as the adversary. And that's where we train early on that, you know, in these situations to be acutely aware of everything. And I've even had calls where uh, family members show up, church elders show up, uh, because all of a sudden it's become a, a far more broad issue, and now you're dealing with the different aspects that are there too. So I think if anything, we're just always trained that it's it's not just a the, the moment may have brought you there, but there are years potentially of events leading up to that point, which are are making that call that much more difficult and dynamic. Yeah. Um, we talked about some of the stereotypes, thinking that, oh, this is a neighborhood where domestic violence happens in these homes, but not in these homes, and we know that to not be true. Are there other stereotypes, you know, gender stereotypes, well, for example? Yeah, there's, there's gender stereotypes, but, you know, the reality is, is that we see it both ways, right? And while one probably, you know, the, the male offender probably gets more attention, we've arrested women for domestic violence, too. You know, there's other dynamics of relationships uh, the law doesn't really specify gender. It specifies actions in the predominant aggressor of an interaction. So you have to kind of work and back to the training piece, really be, you know, you're checking your own bias, right? If I always think that this is going to be the case, I have to make sure that I'm having an objective view. And went on a call as a sergeant years ago, and it was a pretty heated mess of a call. And there was multiple officers there and me and another sergeant. And as we're sifting through this, we were kind of split on which way this needed to go, right? Because mm -hmm. there was a lot of dynamics at play here. So we had to sit and really talk through all the elements, look at the evidence of what we had and make this determination uh, that this is the direction we were gonna go and kind of check our biases at the door. Now, it's kind of one of those things too, it's like I always say, and I've talked to numerous people on these uh, calls, the law enforcement is the front door to the criminal justice system. There's courts, there's proceedings that determine further action down the road. But for us in, in the field, we have to make a decision based on what we have at the moment. Tell me a little bit about the future and what you think a city like Sioux Falls, which is growing, um, needs to continue to take these kinds of, you know, family problems beyond just the, I'm going to call 911 right yeah. now because you, yeah. you you don't want to be in that business every every it's no. not i guess what i'm trying to say is not just about more cops on the streets will help bring this number down no. and help reach people what do you think the right direction is to go for this kind of public service yeah by the time we arrive uh, the damage is typically done you know law enforcement arrives the action's already taken place then we talk about about prevention well what does prevention look like and i think it always comes back to support kids and families. Like people always ask me, how do we, you know, tackle crime issues, support kids and families, support kids and families. So, so what is engaging our youth in conversations early on 
about what's healthy and what's not and modeling good behavior. And I think even back to, you know, relationships that we've probably, when we were back in middle school or high school, right? Mm -hmm. Well, well, what peer groups or how do we teach people what a healthy relationship is versus an unhealthy relationship? Because I think a lot of people can think back to some pretty unhealthy relationships they had as young adults that kind of set the stage for where they're going in the future. And so I think it's with a lot of issues, you know, it may be something that we're uncomfortable talking about with with kids, but, you know, and maybe law enforcement isn't the voice to carry that, right? But how do we engage with young people in schools or have early warning systems and peer accountability where, you know what, if I see that my friend is in an unhealthy relationship, that I feel strong enough and encouraged enough to call that out and help that person to work through it. And I think that's where we make inroads is by a really an informed community who seeks to empower and help each other uh, rather than hope that the cops come in. Because like I said, by then it's it's a little too late, but we need to be the voice for it and we need to collaborate, which is why I'm always talking about how great our partners are and how much work can be done there. Yeah, I don't know. I remember every year, and my daughter, it's been a few years, was in elementary school when, you know, Buddy, <laughs> the yeah. police bug would yeah. come, and Officer Potabom, who she called yeah. Officer Bomb Bomb because yep. she couldn't pronounce his name in I kindergarten, can't yeah, his name either, I think, uh, so. would give the speech. Every single year there was a kid who would come forward and yeah. say something that he had said they didn't know was wrong and that was happening in yeah. their life. Lives are saved by yeah. those, those interactions. We take for granted sometimes, depending on your upbringing, yeah. just we see the horrors that kids are exposed to on a regular basis as law enforcement. And we see what becomes situation normal for them, right? So we can't take for granted that we need to be a voice for some of those kids to say, yeah, you know what? That's not the way things should be. And you don't have to be treated that way. And again, support kids, I think, is the biggest way we make inroads in a lot of these really complex societal issues. Chief Toome with the Sioux Falls Police Department. Thank you so much for stopping by. I look forward to our next yeah, conversation. Thanks for having me. Put me on the calendar. Happy to talk about anything at any time. So. All right. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Native America returns to PBS this October with four new hour-long episodes. Each presents an intimate portrait of contemporary Native America. The Native-directed series reveals the beauty and power of today's indigenous communities. The first episode airs tomorrow night and will feature South Dakota's Henry Redcloud. Henry is a sustainable builder. His company, Redcloud Renewable, focuses on developing new forms of energy-efficient housing inspired by Plains Indian traditions. Henry Redcloud is a fifth-generation direct descendant of Chief Redcloud Mapialuta. And he's with us from SDPB's Black Hills Area Community Foundation studio at Mapialuta, or Red Cloud Indian School. Henry Red Cloud, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Ampetu Washtelo. Very good day to be here. I am so happy we're having uh, this connection through this studio right there. And um, I got to watch the episode that you're featured in for Native America season two. And that was a thrill as well. When you returned to Pine Ridge in oh mid nineteen nineties, were these sorts of things the you know on the horizon? What what did you imagine the future would hold for the community, and have you seen it change since nineteen ninety five? Yeah, since uh, uh, since I returned nineteen ninety five, I had basically uh, a calling for the land and and uh, 
calling for our culture, our language, our ceremony, our song, our dance here amongst the Tihongtuan Oglala Lakota Nation. So I was, uh, I s spent that year going across the communities here and asking people if they had one wish that could happen for them today, this minute, what would that be? And it didn't take people long to respond, and the majority of them re responded this way, as uh, would like to get back to the old homestead, rekindle mm -hmm. that fire at the old homestead. So what does that take? What, uh, what, uh, how can a person get back to the old homestead? Uh, they, were, they stressed that they were living in HUD housing and uh, not, not being able to plant food uh, to have a nice flower bed, yes, but not to be able to plant food. And, uh, you know, there were, they were explaining to me how much healthier they were once they planted their own food and was sustainable out on their own pieces of, of land. So, uh, you know, what's it take to get back there? So I'd, I'd done research and found my way and found some loopholes and, mm was able to help a, a lot of people to regain, uh, to see that vision, that hope, that dream. So you're pairing, really, you're tapping into thousands of years of indigenous knowledge, and then collaborating with innovative builders to look at housing for the future. Tell me a little bit about some of the partnerships and projects to give people a place to live where they're not going to freeze to death overnight, and they yeah. can be in relationship to the land? Uh-huh. Well, I would like to, uh, first and foremost to uh, express and say and encourage people that partnerships are very key at this time of our lives here as, as human race. Uh, we were at the tipping point 30 years ago on this here climate change. Uh, that was, you know, 30 years ago. We got no time to reinvent the wheel, so uh, partnerships are very key and within since 1997 to current I I partnered with a lot of uh, outstanding uh, organizations and uh, as well as being having uh, my uh, technical background in building I was able to uh, I basically volunteered up and down the front range of Colorado to learn these natural builds and to bring them home here and implement them. You know, today we have uh, a key partnership with In Our Hands. They're, uh, they came up with this new design. While it's really not new, but it's really hyper-efficient. Mm -hmm. It's using uh, this... Uh, this uh, uh, a type of build that's called uh, cellular concrete. Mm -hmm. It's a uh, it's a farm of water, uh, Portland and foam, being like eighty percent air bubbles. Uh, it's super hyper efficient um, in heating and cooling. And so we we took our traditional aspects of living circular in teepees here in the northern plains, and we incorporated that within this here structure and found it to be. Uh, uh, just a beautiful, you know, dwelling. Everybody that comes to visit to see this, this is is very impressed and feels so good upon entering the house. So mm -hmm. these houses are hyper efficient. So we're looking to, 
we're uh, with our partnership we're looking to build 22 of these here systems and train people indigenous people here in the Tihong Tuan Oglala Lakota Nation, but across indigenous, indigenous, you know, country here, here in the United States, you know, we're uh, there's 574 federally recognized tribes, mm-hmm. uh, so we're just just barely making a dent in the possibilities that can happen to to train people to have them put the building of homes back into the people's hands where it belongs. When I am watching uh, this episode of PBS's Native America, there are moments where your project fails and you have to redesign it and try again. Talk to the young people about the process of experimentation and failure and pushing through those moments to come up with that uh, really great moment when, hey, it it works. (laughs) We did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. To to start out with, uh, uh, you know, unknowingly for the young folks out there you know uh they start to rebuild themselves oneself un uh, you know uh they really uh they're unknowing to this but they're starting to rebuild themselves and to stay on on a project even though if it fails to you could always go back to the drawing board and mm-hmm. make it better uh there's there's always that I encourage people to j- just not, you know, uh, uh, try something once and then, and then it fails. So then you, you know, you're t- you take a different route. But you can go back, take it back to the drawing board and see what failed, and uh, fix that, mm. fix that. And within that, unknowingly, we're repairing ourselves as well moving into this here 21st you know century so taking our our old concept of 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 our culture and our language and our song our dance our you know ceremony taking this and and incorporating it within uh taking our values and incorporating it within this new way this new way to honor the old way and then become sustainable Mm. we are repairing ourselves as well i love that henry red cloud and Native America premieres tomorrow. That's Tuesday, October 24th, 8 Central, um, at 8 Central, 7 Mountain on SDPB TV. You can also stream them on the PBS app. Henry Redcloud, it's so nice to talk to you again. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we look forward to our next conversation. Yes, I encourage everybody, one and all throughout the country, to please tune in to the PBS documentary tomorrow evening. Uh, and from... RCR, Red Cloud Renewable, would just like to say one more thing. Mm-hmm. Would like to say, uh, in, our, in our language, would like to uh, encourage everybody to move down this direct path, this green path. So I'm going to, uh, f- from us here at Red Cloud Renewable, we would like to say, we chose Ani to one and all uh, the translation for that is we meaning sun mm. cho meaning beautiful and ni meaning life so life under the beauty of the sun let's keep moving forward let's move move down this path together thank you very much giving me the opportunity aho pilama ya yellow my honor
just a bit of the song Spellbound by the great Judy Collins. It is a song from her most recent album of the same name. Judy Collins is a Grammy-winning artist whose career has spanned seven decades. Now she is coming to South Dakota. She will perform at the Intimate Orpheum Theater in Sioux Falls on Wednesday, November 1st. And yes, Judy Collins is with us on the phone. Welcome to In the Moment in South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Oh, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Have you been here before? Have you spent time in South Dakota before? In South Dakota? I'm not sure. I have to ask my agent. <laughs> oh, no. I love Sometimes it. Sometimes you have to look back over your schedule and say, oh, I was there. <laughs> but I'm sure I will love being there. And, of course, being a Colorado girl, I'm sure I've yeah. been there many often times. Yes. Well, we are happy to have you back or here for the first time. This album, the most recent one, is an opportunity for you to showcase your talent and your heart as a writer as well as a singer. Tell me a little bit about choosing a song for yourself based on your own poetry or your own lyrics versus selecting a song from another songwriter and making it your own. Well, finally, there's no difference when you get down to recording them because both have to be treated like Judy Collins songs and you have to do them in the manner that Judy Collins would do them. <laughs> um, otherwise, you're having uh, Jackson Brown record them, which would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have written many, many songs for many, many years since meeting up with Leonard Cohen in 1966, and he said to me, I don't know why you're not, not writing your own songs. It is a puzzle, but it's not something that I have to think much about because there were so many fabulous songs for me to to make my own and so many artists apparently that I was supposed to help. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the biggest pieces of it is that I, it was intended in my DNA or in the program that was <laughs> was laid out for me at my birth that I'm supposed to help other people. And I think being able to sing the songs of artists who were coming up, I mean, I sang some of the first songs of of, uh, of Bob Dylan, of of Leonard Cohen, of Joni Mitchell. Um, you know, I've done that a lot. So, but writing has has been with me since my introduction to Leonard. Yeah, and and, it's um, like he was putting that into the universe, saying, "Well, why yes, why right. don't we have Judy Collins' right. words and lyrics yeah, as well?" Why don't we yeah. ever do that? <laughs> and he knew, of course, by that time. The interesting thing was that his manager, who was a friend of mine, his friend before she became his manager, really, mm -hmm. for a while, she was his best friend growing up. I'm going to say goodbye to my husband. He's going out the door right now. <laughs> Excellent. Bye from all of us. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so uh, she knew it was 66, and I'd been recording since 61, mm -hmm. and I had made a number of these artists whom I recorded much better known. And I'm sure that she had that on her, on her mind. Also, who was, who was he going to go play songs for? Bob Dylan? Not very likely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Phil Oates? I don't think so. <laughs> so I was the one sort of standing tall in the village. And uh, <clears throat> I was available. I, I was delighted to have him come and sing me his songs. Uh, 
I love this. Your music has not lost and your performances have not lost any of their energy. How have you learned to take care of yourself? I mean, you've been through some rough times for sure with your health, but yet you have endured and reinvented yourself in a way that means you can still take the stage in your 80s. Tell me about that. Well, I've done a lot of self-help and of a lot of <clears throat> a lot of things. I, I I went into therapy uh, early when I moved to New York. Um, I got I started to exercise long before um, the the videos of Jane Fonda came out. Um, I started with the Canadian Air Force exercises, which is a hefty <laughs> bunch of stuff to do. It's quite exciting. I've done that. I've done a lot of um, um, Jack Holzman's wife, Nina, who's unfortunately gone today, when I had my first show at, uh, at, at Town Hall in New York in 1964, she called me in the morning and she said, I've got, a, I've got a, uh, an appointment for you at uh, Elizabeth Arden's. You're going to have a, a massage. So I then started to have, and I have had a massage last week, no, two days ago. It is. I have taken care of myself in terms of physical exercise, um, getting the treatments that one needs. I think. I think that massage is essential. And I've yeah. been. I've been. Uh, what's it called? Uh, I've done some exotic massage as well as regular old deep tissue. <laughs> yeah, you got to do the work. Swedish is massage. what you're saying. Yeah, Swedish massage. And you got to do the. It, it. It all counts. I exercise. I've just. Uh, started having a, a regular trainer for weight for bone gain i've had yeah. a lot of bone loss because of a lot of things i've done like my eating disorder so i've got a face you know i mm -hmm. think the trick is you face everything that comes along and you generally speaking keep a healthy um pattern of exercise and food and training and Having a good time. I spend half my life working on our social life and our uh, theater tickets and our dinners because my my experience in life is, I was telling somebody this earlier today, my first therapist gave me a very good piece of advice. He said, when they don't call you back, call them. There you go. <laughs> it's a powerful yeah. lesson. And, uh, you know, I've all, I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I love living here. But my social life and the people I hang out with and that I learn from in conversations over dinner or whatever, uh, that's important. It's essential. It's mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good advice. Live like Judy Collins. You'll still be on the stage <laughs> in your 80s coming up with new music and uh, call a friend. And go meet up oh, for a social a event at this Absolutely. concert. It's at the Orpheum yeah. Theater in Sioux Falls on Wednesday, November 1st. We'll put all our information <laughs> up at sdpb.org slash news. And we're going to end today's show with the beautiful Prairie Dream from the album Spellbound. Some great local connections here in the song. Judy Collins, a, a great honor and a delight to interview you today. Thank I really, you. really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, my dear. You have a beautiful day out there. Thank you. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, we'll let Judy's voice take us away to the top of the hour, and we thank you for listening.